You're listening to the Fathering Circle Podcast. Being a man, going from being just a man to being a, a father brings with it its own set of challenges because as men in this country, we aren't prepared to be fathers in really any kind of organized, conscious way. Welcome to a special two-part series of the Fathering Circle podcast, a conversation between father and son. I'm your host, Eric Marsh Sr. Part one will focus on what it's like for me to be a father, being prepared to be a dad, and the challenges and joys of raising children. Join us for part two, where we'll get to hear Eric Jr.'s perspective on fatherhood and what it was like being raised by a single dad. Today, I'm being interviewed by my son, Eric Marsh Jr. Hello. (laughs) Um, I can't tell you what an honor and a pleasure it is just to be able to sit there in this space, just to be able to do this. This is like, it's a big deal. Partly because I love you, man. And I'm always happy to see you. Always happy for us to talk. But I also feel like just as men, right? And black men specifically, we don't get a chance to have conversations between father and son, let alone conversations that other people can hear and like use for their relationship. So thank you for taking the time out of your day to like come visit and sit and have this talk. Thank you for inviting me. And I have a list of questions here that I have decided to ask you, a father that I know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I guess just for a little bit more insight on, on being a father. All right, let's get started. All right, cool. So first questions. How did you feel when you first found out you were going to be a father and were you at all prepared? You know, that's a tricky question. And the reason why it's a tricky question is because I've been in relationships before where my girlfriend got pregnant and didn't keep the baby. And so that was technically the first time I was like, going to be a father. And so having gone through that, that was really difficult because at the time I just couldn't wrap my brain around what it meant. I've been fortunate enough to be a father figure in ways prior to you being born that forced me to think about it. And I actually, I, I really looked forward to being a father. And then to have have a junior was just that much more of an honor. So would you say that the prior experiences helped you be a little bit more prepared The prior experiences, I think they did help me be more prepared just from the fact of the reality of how the process hits you as a man to be told we're expecting a baby Mm. or or in a more accurate sense, when she tells you I'm expecting a child and you're the father. So that process is really jarring the first time you experience it. And I think it's jarring every time you experience it. It's different every time whether you plan for it or not. There are people who plan for it and work for it and still get that news and it's still a shock or a surprise and a happy moment. There's some people that don't plan for it and it's happy. Some people don't plan for it and it's a miserable experience. (laughs) Honestly, for me, it's just an awareness. It just brings a sense of awareness and a perspective about who and where you are in relation to the rest of the world. I often say that when it comes to men, you know, we're raised in such a way that we often don't have to think about caring for another human being. 
from the time that we're born until the time we become a parent. And some fathers don't even have to do it after then because they don't really play a role. Kind of brought back memories of when I went through it as well. And, you know, I had my experience where I was going to be a father and I got the news and I was rather excited and I brought it home to you. And you were like, you better not be making me no granddad already. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but no, I I, I was also excited and I, I felt like I was emotionally prepared more than financially prepared. But I just knew that I was ready to take on the responsibility that I felt like was mine Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and of course it turned out to not be my responsibility so why not because the child wasn't mine Mm -hmm. which we found out later after getting the test done how long after the birth did it take for you to take the test and find out only it it didn't take too long i think it was only like three months if i'm not mistaken to Mm -hmm. actually get home to see my daughter for the first time spend a little bit of time with her get the test done and then i had to leave but i got the test results probably like the the following month uh it was it was really a, a devastating blow like it was like i tried to like just be strong through it but Like I said, I was already excited. Like, that was already my daughter. I was Mm -hmm. ready to be a father. And then even if I wasn't prepared, uh, like I said, I was ready. So it hurt. Yeah. What what, what made you ready? What made me ready? Yeah, you said you were were excited. Well, that and and that's why I I was trying to be specific when I said that I was emotionally ready. Because Mm -hmm. whether or not I actually knew what to do, whether or not I actually had the funds to do it, I was, I guess what I mean is that I was ready to be there for my child and to learn and grow with my child. And so that's what I mean by I was ready. I never experienced any any kind of motivation like that, though, because I was gone Mm -hmm. and I was in the military at the time and I was going through training and training is a bit rough. It can get you down. It can beat you down because that's what the military training is designed to do. Break you down, break down those old habits and build you up to something, something better. And, um... It was getting me down. I had to lead people. Um, some of those people were older than me. Some of those people didn't like to listen. Um, there was already a time I was going to get kicked out just for cursing. And uh, no, nah, it was it was really, really rough. But at the time, like I also found out I was supposed to be having my daughter. I knew I was supposed to be having my daughter. And I even had a conversation with my training instructor. And, you know, he kind of like broke it down to me. Had a little one-on-one and basically was like, you know, you're you're a man now. You you have a daughter at home, somebody that you need to, you know, put first. You can't let your your stress or your sadness get in the way of what you need to do as a father, as a man. And like I did take that to heart and it, it stuck with me. So I kept pushing through no no matter what, no matter how bad I felt, I knew that I was gonna go to sleep, I was gonna get some rest, and I was gonna kick ass the next day. And I did. Honestly, I will say that after I found out she wasn't mine, I haven't felt as motivated, like, ever. That, that's just a different kind of drive. Then you start talking about, you know, some fathers aren't there after the birth. It's because of those feelings that I had when I was having a child that I don't understand how men can have, like, how men can go through that. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't understand where that comes from. I can't relate to it. And truth be told, I don't really respect people not being there for their child. It's one thing to go through an experience, the child is not yours, and you choose not to take on that responsibility. But it's another thing for you to bring a child into this world, put a burden on that child's life, on the mother's life, and then for you to not be there to deal with your responsibility. You just walk away from that. I don't get it. No, I think it's important. It's important conversation to have, right? Because... 
there's something that was there in you already. And I'm wondering if there is something there in those men who choose not to be present that makes them make that decision. Just like there was something in you already that made you feel a sense of urgency and pride and motivation. Did you notice any challenges or unnecessary challenges that you face being a black father? I mean, hell, being a black person in this country brings unnecessary challenges. Right. So it's it's inevitable that any role underneath being a black person is going to come with additional challenges. Mm -hmm. And also, let me just back up and say, being a man, going from being just a man to being a, a father brings with it its own set of challenges, because as men in this country, we aren't prepared to be fathers in really any kind of organized conscious way. Unless you have a very woke parent or a very like mindful parent that is conscious enough to say what they're doing and exemplify parenting practices and behaviors, you don't get any sort of training. Beyond the issue of whether we're prepared or not, being a black father, I think one of the biggest challenges is resources to provide for your child. I think one of the things that you may not know was... You know, I was working in a nursing home when you were born and something happened where I wound up out of work. You were two years old and I had no job. And so one of the things was I was mindful enough to not like be so proud and egotistical that I didn't utilize resources that were available. And I say that to say, like I was on welfare. I signed up for welfare when you were two years old and I was out of work because I knew you needed medical insurance and coverage so that I could take you to your doctor's appointments and do what needed to be done. And then I also knew that at least I could get some food stamps so we could cover like formula and milk and food and all of that kind of stuff. And then whatever else I needed to do beyond that to provide, then I would do. But I, I did that almost immediately because I was like, one, I'm not no street dude. I'm not going to go out here and use the excuse of like having to hustle on the corner or do something illegal to put food on the table because that wasn't in my nature anyway. And two, I knew that I could do that and reach out and use that public assistance at the same time that I was looking for work. And so as I was going through that process, you know, oftentimes I was the only man in the room. Like when they, they used to make us go to like job, a job training program. And I think out of a room of like 20 people, it was like me and one other dude and all women. And so knowing that, then that made me realize uh, that, no, there, it's not that there there's inherent challenges to black fathers. It's that we just have to learn to look at the system. We have to learn to look at what's around us and utilize what we have differently, make different decisions and different choices for the benefit of our children, rather than what speaks to our, our ego. Other than that, I, I mean, I'm sure there are other challenges just from being a black father, but honestly, I can't identify any right now. You also have a daughter besides just having two sons. So to those who have multiple children, what are some of the differences between raising your son um, versus your daughter? And would you say that one is easier than the other? 
I haven't I haven't really encountered anything that different. Now, I will say that you have to be mindful about like not imposing differences on them. And when I say differences, like we we deal with in this society a lot of gender expectations. This is what a boy does, this is what a girl does. You know, I'll be honest with you. For the longest time I had this impression that girls were sweet and they were much neater than boys and they weren't as dirty and weren't as like unorganized. And your sister is just all the kinds of unorganized and just unkept. And, you know, I'll come in the room and like one sock will be on this side of the room and another sock on that side of the room. And she don't know where her pants were that she just took off. And and I'm just like, but that's my expectation of her because she's a girl, not because of anything like, you know, I should be putting on her. He was going on a little bit about uh, not imposing on uh, on your children, which kind of was taking me into the question. How do you control, handle and or discuss what a child is exposed to? How do you control, handle or discuss what a child is exposed to? Is that right? Yes. You don't. I mean, you can, but only in a very limited way. Right. So one of the things that I've said early on. And I recognized this in raising you was that I only have a certain amount of control over you and how I raise you in the house. And once you step out that door, I don't have any of a control what the, what the outside world does to you or, or what you do in that outside world. Right. And so I don't have control over your friends and how they're raised and their thoughts and things like that. Which ironically is one of the reasons why I started getting into mentoring and like parenting workshops and things like that, because I realized that I had to have some influence or some relationship to your friends because they had an influence and impact on you as well. And they may not have a household. So in terms of like controlling that, again, as parents, we only have control of what we what we do in the household. And another thing I think that we miss a lot as parents is that our children are individuals. Like you're born an individual, yes. right? And so you have a whole lot of free will mm-hmm. and conscience and determination and thinking. Oh my God. All of that, all of that comes inherent in the package as soon as delivered, like it's <laughs> already there, right? And so you don't have 100% control over your children, what they think and what they do. And so accepting that was like really important for me to understand. Um, And I think you taught me that lesson more than anybody else. And you taught me that lesson as you grew older and as I started seeing you make decisions, whether I agreed with them or not, like these were your decisions. And I think as a parent, we have to, that's a big hurdle to get, past or get over when you're a parent, the moment that you realize that your child is their own individual and is is going to make decisions on their own. And some of those decisions are going to be completely contrary to everything that you may have taught them. And that's okay. Because that's the way life works. How do do you discuss certain things with, with children? I think, how do you discuss certain things with children? You mean certain, like taboo topics or sensitive topics. 
I think the way you discuss sensitive topics with children, the smartest way that I've learned is for the parent to ask the child a question about the topic, right? So if a child comes to you and asks you, you know, you know, what is sex? And they're six years old or seven years old. I mean, you could give them at that age some, you know, generic, non-specific answer, or you can give them a very specific, you know, detailed answer. Um, but they may not, they may or may not retain the information, right? So I think one, it's about your the moment that you're in and your child's emotional, intellectual development and what they can handle at that point, right? Because depending on your child, and that's another reason why I say ask them a question back, is because most of the times when a person comes to you and asks you a question, they already have an idea of the answer, right? It's a glimpse. It came from somewhere. So there's a point of reference that they're thinking about when they generate the question. And so if a child comes to you with a question that's sensitive or, you know, taboo, I always start off with a question like, well, what do you think it is? Or where did you hear about it? Right. And that allows you to get the context of the conversation and it gives you a a perspective on their scope of understanding about the subject. Right. And and then by asking that question, it becomes a two way conversation. You don't feel pressured to like have to have all the answers because a lot of parents make the mistake of like, you know, a lot of times you'll just shut the child down. Like, oh, that's not even something we're going to talk about in this house. Nope. Sorry. And meanwhile, the child still has the question. And now they're just going someplace else to get the answer. So, yeah, for me, I think it's, you know, the best practice that I've learned is to 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 return the question, answer the question with a question to get a better sense of understanding of where that child is. And then you can make decision on where to go with it. So at what point do you allow your children to make their own decisions? From day one. Every parent should begin the process of allowing their children to make their own decisions from the very beginning of life, because once you're gone, they're going to have to make their own decisions, right? And so there's there's incremental processes that you can engage in with your children because allowing a child to make their own decisions builds their self-esteem. And builds their independence and builds their ability to operate as a human being, right? Nobody wants a robot, right? So if you if you make all the decisions for your children, at what point in time do you expect them to, to be then become an adult, right? Because if you're if you're making all the decisions for them, all the way up through teenage years, how are they supposed to have healthy reasoning skills when they're not around you? How are they supposed to make decisions when they're out in public or out in the community or around their friends if they're never allowed to make decisions in your presence? Right. So I say start at the very beginning and allow your children to make decisions. What outfits you want to wear to do today? Which sneaks do you want to wear today? Do you want to eat this or this? Well, do you want to, Do you want to eat candy now or do you want to eat candy later? Right. Because life is nothing but a series of lessons. Right. And so every decision that a child is forced to make teaches them a lesson. You get the opportunity to learn, you know, delayed gratification, right? 
if I eat all the candy now, I won't have any candy later. <laughs> and then you, you, you want to make that decision. You want to eat all the candy now? Okay, here, go ahead and eat all the candy. Right? Not only will they not have candy later, but their stomach probably going to hurt. Your stomach will probably hurt. Teeth. You'll be out of candy later. You'll want some candy later. and you know, crash. Exactly. It's all kinds of things that can happen. So I say start from day one allowing your children to make, make decisions for themselves. And that also, by doing that, it opens up the opportunity for growth and conversation in your relationship with your children, right? Because if things go wrong, <laughs> you could always go back and be like, how'd that work for you? <laughs> no, didn't work out too well? Oh, you want to talk about it? You know, like it's an opportunity to, 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 to make it a, a learning opportunity. Are there any habits that you try to or that you would try to instill in a child while they're young for them to grow into? Absolutely. That is what parenting is. Parenting is instilling habits, hopefully healthy habits, in children for them to grow into. And that's going to benefit them as they get older. So what would those habits be? The first thing I think is critical thinking. The ability to think critically is one of the most important skills that you can have as a human being. And that only comes from being put into challenging situations or giving given challenging things to to think about or to work through. But what would you describe as critical thinking? And critical thinking is the ability to assess a situation, right? on the fly, when you're in the moment and make decisions that are in your best interest or best interest of those involved in the long term. Critical thinking is really about, do I want to immediately react to this situation and possibly have future negative outcomes? Or do I want to stop and think and figure out a way to have the best long-term outcome. A good way to think about it is with a lot of things we see out here in the streets with young people, like fighting, you know, this idea of immediately reacting to stimulation, whether it's somebody cussing you out or somebody trying to get your goat and like egging you on to do something. Critical thinking is going to be the thing that's going to tell you, all right, if I do this thing now, these are the things that could happen. Is it worth me responding immediately or should I plan and do something else differently? That's going to that's going to benefit me in the long run. So another habit that I would love to instill is reading. Reading is one of the most I mean, we people talk about it all the time, but I really think it's underappreciated how important reading is. If you think about it, think about an, an autobiography or think about a biography of someone's life. Right. That's a book that someone has filled with all of their life experiences. Right. If you take the time to read a biography, one of the most popular ones, the, the ones that I think is most uh, recommended uh, as a father, as a black father, is the autobiography of Malcolm X. That's a life story. And actually, it was only 30 years of his life, 30 or 30 or so years of his life up until maybe a year or two before he was assassinated. But in that book, he tells you about all of his experiences in a way 
that gives you insight on how you can live your life from the moment that you read that. So you can literally learn from someone else's mistakes and make your own life better. You can't do that without without reading. It would take years of following somebody around, right? Or interviewing people, one-on-one conversations, which we, we don't have the time to do. Think about the most highly sought after education in the world. I saw KRS-One give a lecture at Temple University one year, and he was talking on a college campus to a room full of people. He referred to your college degree as after four years, they give you your receipt. And the reason why he said that was because you're paying for knowledge for those four years. There's nothing stopping you from going to your local library and signing out a book, the same version or an older version of the same book that they would give you sitting in a college classroom. Mm -hmm. And so what he was trying to say was, you can get that same level of education on your own for free just by reading the book. Now, there's other advantages that come with going to college. Most people will tell you, especially if you look at research done for like Ivy League schools, the socialization and the networking are the at, at the biggest adv- advantages of going to, to college. But nobody tells you that before you go to college. It's just like study hard, get good grades. Or go there, party, and lose your mind <laughs> and waste a couple of years. But, you know, neither one of those two things are as effective as just getting in the habit of reading. Well, I think all kids uh, have gone through moments where they have acted out, be it in public or at home. So what are some disciplinary actions you believe that you can give a child that isn't, you know, whooping their behinds? Well, I think one of the things that I can honestly say about you, like one of the things that I I know for a fact with when it comes to you, I can count on one hand how many times you got a spanking. On one hand, literally less than five times in your life. And I know that because I was very deliberate about and conscious about not doing that. Um. And the reason why is because, first of all, I respect you as a human being and I respect you as being a brilliant young child, like a young man and a, and a, and a little boy, you know, um, and also knew that you would cry at me just being mad at you or like rhyme, raising my voice at you. Right. And a lot of times and I get that it's not about sensitivity. See, this is something that I I, I wish more men understood about their sons. And it chokes me up a little bit because. You would cry out of disappointing me. The way you felt about disappointing me was worse than any spanking that I could give you. And so me being upset and fussing and hollering at you was the thing that, that you and your brothers and sisters would don't want to happen. And I think that's just, that applies to most children. They Children don't want to disappoint their parents. Or dis, you know. And so understanding that, if you're, if you're a parent and you're paying attention, then you recognize you don't have to beat your child. Second, I feel like a parent's job, a parent's responsibility is to outsmart their children. So if there's anything that you may have done or that a child may have done that we think deserves some type of punishment, we have to think about the punishment in relation 
to a restorative practice, right? What is going to rectify the thing that the child did or what is going to teach them a lesson that's going to prevent them from doing it in the future? And most parents don't get a chance to think like that. I hate to say it, but but particularly when we talk about in the black community about whoopings, right? In a way, it just relates back to like slave trauma or post-traumatic slave syndrome, as some people call it, right? This idea that people are not humans, like they're, they're property, right? Or they're animals that you got to discipline a certain way as opposed to talk to them, right? I think everybody does something for a reason, including children. And so if your child does something that you feel like deserves a punishment for, the first thing you should do is ask them why they did it. Like get in their head and ask why. I've seen so many kids get get spankings out in public um, because the parent immediately reacted to some negative thing. Oh, you got in a fight today at school? How dare you embarrass me out here, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, that child got jumped by three other kids, but nobody was able to catch the three other kids. Um, And so your child had to go to the principal's office and you get called up from work and now you're only mad because you had to leave work to come to the principal's office because you heard your child is fighting. You don't know the backstory, right? And oftentimes a lot of parents will just be reactionary without without talking to them. So to answer your question, what are some things that you can do to discipline your child other than giving them a whooping? I think is you talk to them. Back in the day, we used to have to write essays and pages of sentences and things to sit at the table and write for hours. You can take away things that they cherish or are important, like video games and cell phones and things like that. You can have them engage in some type of physical activity or an exercise um, in a way that kind of gets their body engaged and their mind. And then you can, I don't, there's so many different things that you can do other than spanking a child. Like, I, I feel like, and this, this might not, be a good one but i know like you said if it's a if it's if it's coming from a source of just reacting if you have multiple children and your children start fighting or hitting each other or you have uh uh if your son starts hitting on your daughter and yeah you you could you could ask him why he did it but if it's something as small as uh because she made me upset because i was upset with her i do feel like that that's a situation where you wouldn't be wrong. I wouldn't say for whooping their behinds, but uh, maybe popping them because it's it's not nice to get hit. It doesn't feel good to get hit. Mm-hmm. And if that's somebody that you care about, you know, it's like, why why would you hit that person? And that's the conversation that you would have with the child. But I also feel like at the same time that you have the conversation, like they still get popped, you know, or or, you know, hit. You just don't beat a child without telling them why or having a conversation to go along with it kind of situation. But doesn't that raise the question, right? Why are you telling a child not to hit another person and at the same time you're in the process of hitting that child, right? Mm -hmm. That raises a contradiction immediately that the child is aware of. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing. We don't give enough credit to our children for being intelligent human beings at a very early age. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me not to hit somebody while you're hitting me. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't, the two don't go together. Mm-hmm. Now, 
here's the thing. Now, I, you know, despite what I said earlier, I think there is an exception where a child should maybe get tapped, spanked, or just one or two hits. And that's when they don't understand the harm that they're doing to another child if they're hitting that child. So maybe I didn't explain it right, but that kind of sounds like what I just said. We're agreeing, but what I'm saying is what I'm talking about is something that's very early on, oftentimes between the age of like two and four, right? When kids are just interacting with each other and they don't know that they're physically harming another child, right? And so biting, scratching, anything like that, you know, and I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying this is an, a, a potential situation where it could work. If a child is then like five, six, seven years old and still hurting other kids physically, then there's something else going on there, right? And so if you're still beating your child like three or four years down the line, or if, if, if you've done it once or twice and then you've got to do it again multiple times, that means it's not working. Right. So that's what I'm saying is that it shouldn't be a reoccurring form of punishment. I agree. Again, this goes back to what I was saying about a parent's job is to outsmart their children. Mm -hmm. If you're doing something to correct their behavior and their behavior isn't being corrected, then why are you dishing out the same type of punishment over and over again? It's insanity. That's insanity. It's just a waste of time. I believe that that's what the father in circle is, is here to do, you know, help get through the changing times to change the roles of, you know, men's jobs being outside of the home. Let's get them back in the home to help raise the young men, help raise our families in general. That's definitely what we need. Join us for part two, where we'll get to hear Eric Jr.'s perspective on fatherhood and what it was like being raised by a single dad. You just listened to the Fathering Circle podcast. See you next time.